Take the Word of God, please, with me, and turn to the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians, chapter 1. And once again, we will be turning to the section that we are considering, which is chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 2, verse 18. And we'll read that together. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all, 
For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Trust that God will bless reading of His holy word this morning. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we come to the time of looking at His word. Our Father in heaven, we come to Thee at the outset before we preach, declaring that every ounce of power and blessing in preaching comes from the Holy Ghost. It is not in the man, it is not in anything but the Spirit of God. We need you, Lord, to help us this morning. We want to grow in thee, we want to understand this passage. We want to be stirred to serve you with a greater zeal and ardor and to love thee more. Please help us as we look at thy word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul made it clear at the beginning of verse 27 that his preeminent desire for the church at Philippi was that they would live in the light of the gospel. That they would live in the light of the gospel. And last Lord's Day, we looked at the significance of that principle, living in the light of the gospel. Right after this phrase, however, verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, we have one little word, and it is the word that. That. Now, this is a very important word for us as we look at this passage, because that is a hinge word. It's like opening a door one way to the other. It swings on that hinge, and the word that is a hinge. It could be translated, in order that. Or, this is the desired result. So, Paul is saying, live in the light of the gospel in order that this might happen. Live in the light of the gospel so that this will be the result. And he's going to explain what that desired result is in verses 27 through, well, really through chapter 2, verse um, 16, if you, if you take the whole passage in the light of verse 27a. But Paul is saying that you need to live in the light of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or else be absent, so whether I live or I die, whether I ever see you Philippians again or I never, uh, whether I see you or I never see you again, I want to hear that there are certain marks found in you, church at Philippi. I want to hear that I may hear of your affairs. I want to hear, I want to have um, re- related to me that there are certain things found in the church at Philippi. And these things are a result of living in the light of the gospel. What are these things? Well, three in particular. You can look at the whole, really, chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 18, and you can mark a number of different fruits of living in the light of the gospel. But in this passage here, we see three marks specifically that Paul touches on that are the result of living in the light of the gospel. He says that you stand fast in one spirit. You can say this is one mark, unyielding. Unyielding. 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. You can say, here's another mark. Unified. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Here's a third mark. Unafraid. Unyielding, unified, and unafraid. This is what Paul wants to see in the church at Philippi. This is what a church that lives in the light of the gospel looks like. A church that is unyielding, unified, and unafraid. But we also have to note that each one of these marks has to do with the gospel. Because if you look at verse 27, Paul says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, you're to stand fast in the gospel with regards to the gospel. You're to strive together with regards to the gospel. You're not to be terrified because of opposition to your gospel. So these all have to do with the gospel. So if we give the, a full explanation of each of these marks, we could say this. Number one, unyielding in the gospel. Number two, unified for the gospel. And number three, unafraid with the gospel. Those are the marks that Paul wants to see at the church in Philippi. And because of that little word, that, meaning these things are a result of living in the light of the gospel, we can use these marks as a test to see whether we as individuals, as as a body, are living in the light of this gospel. Are we unyielding for the gospel? Are we unified for the gospel? Are we unafraid with the gospel? And see, if we see that those things are lacking, what's the issue? The main issue is that somewhere along the line, the gospel, or Christ in the gospel, Christ Himself, has been put aside out of the spotlight. Hearts have become cold towards Christ. The symptom of that is a lack of these marks. You know, it is when Jesus is the central object of worship, the central object of joy in a church. It is when Christ is preeminent. When Christ, clothed in the gospel, is the pulse beat of the pulpit, is the central hub of the body, is the centerpiece of the church, is the nucleus of the church, the life of the church. It is when Jesus Christ is the main attraction. And when all truth is preached in the light of Christ and His gospel, that these things will be evident. And this is important for us today because in the modern church and sometimes in our own churches, There are many other things that take the spotlight, not Jesus. For some, it is a charismatic personality. And that charismatic personality is really the centerpiece of that church. And they do not have these marks. 
For some, the emphasis in the church is on social justice. Social justice is not wrong, but the emphasis is laid on. Having clean water for people in countries that don't have it, on taking care of the impoverished and the homeless. Now those are good things, but the emphasis is laid there. And these marks are not found. In some places, the emphasis is laid on you, on your activity, on your performance, and not Christ. Now, if the emphasis is laid on Christ, and all doctrine is preached in the light of Jesus and His gospel, there will be holiness in the church. There will be kind, good deeds done for those who are in need. But if the emphasis is taken away, you get a sort of lopsided theology. And you do not have these marks found in the church. We need a gospel-centered church. We need a Christ-centered church, a Christ-centered pulpit. There's a great need today. Great need. Churches today are lacking, perhaps fundamentally in this point. Christ is not central. And if we're not careful, we can be the same. We have to always watch ourselves and take heed lest we fall. Is Christ, is the gospel central? Do we believe what we believe we believe? Do we believe what we believe we believe about Christ, about the gospel? Has Christ gripped our souls? Do we live in the light of this gospel? Well, then these things will be evident. What are these marks? First, unyielding in the gospel. Paul uses the word stand fast. That you stand fast. Now, this is a word derived from combat, derived from warfare. And it brings us to understand the nature of the Christian life and even the church as being something of a war. And it's true. We are at war. We are at war with the devil. We are at war with the flesh. We are at war with the world. We are at war. If you never fight anything, if you never fight sin in your life, if you never fight error, if there's, no, if there's nothing in you that starts a fight with sin. There's nothing in you that starts a fight with the world. Nothing in you that starts a fight with the devil. Then you have never been born again. The fact that you hate your sin should cause you to rejoice. The fact that you mourn over your sin and you tremble and you hate what you've done and it, and it bothers you should give you joy. Yes, Christ is in me. Christ is in me. And the church also is going to be at war. It's going to be at war with a godless culture. It's going to be at war with the devil himself if the church is a gospel-preaching church, gospel-centered church. The man who stands fast in a battle is the man who holds his ground, who stands firm at his post, who will not give an inch to the enemy. He will not budge. He stands like a wall of granite and he puts out his shield and he will not move. He will not give one centimeter to the enemy. 
He will stand fast. He will be unyielding in this gospel. My friends, this is a call for an unyielding, uncompromising church. The church needs to be unyielding. The church needs to be uncompromising. This is a call. Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, stand fast. Stand fast. Be unyielding. Now the church at Philippi, no doubt, felt pressure from Rome. They felt pressure to give in. Just give a pinch of incense to Caesar. Call him Lord. You can have your Lord. You can have Jesus. But have Caesar too. Just give an inch, church. Just compromise a little bit with us. I mean, come on. What's so bad about giving a pinch of incense to Caesar and calling him Lord? Everybody does it. And you can go on your way and you can be accepted in Rome, church at Philippi. Just give a little bit, church. Church, just give a little bit of ground. You can have your Christ, but are you really going to say that everybody who doesn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is lost? Are you going to be that narrow and that bigoted? Why don't you just give a little bit? Just give an inch. Just give a little. And we can all get along so much better. Why don't you just give a little bit with regards to things in our culture? I mean, our culture has said that same-sex marriage is legitimate and celebrated. Why do you have to stand against it? Why do you have to cause trouble? Why do you have to cause trouble with regards to abortion? Why do you have to make such an issue over it? Come, church, just settle down. Calm down. Just give an inch. Why do you have to insist? Why do you have to insist that the Bible is the Word of God? Why do you have to insist that? Just, just give a little bit. Why do you have to insist that the gospel demands holiness of life? Just give a little let people have a little bit of fun. Let them have a little bit of the world. I mean, you can still be saved and, you know, sin, can't you? Just give a little bit. Why don't you just give a little bit with regards to Jesus Christ and His atonement and the reality of hell? I mean, a big book just came out, well, not just a little while ago, that said there's no hell. I mean, Come on, church. Just give a little bit there. We have to be unyielding. We can't give an inch. We, we cannot give one inch of the gospel away. Not one. And that's why we cannot stop preaching the Word of God. The pulpit is not a place for stories. Illustrations can help. It's not a place for stories. It's a place for the preaching of the Word of God. And every line and every truth and every doctrine, no matter how it may upset, no matter how it may cut, we will say that there is a real hell. The Bible says very clearly that there is a hell. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm dies not and the fire is never quenched. The Bible says clearly Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's comprehensive. There's no other way. 
There's no other way to be saved. The Bible's clear. There is one God and only one. All the nations, all the gods of the nations are idols. There's one God and only Him shall we serve. The Bible is clear. The Bible is very clear that to take the life of an unborn child is murder and it is a sin against God. And there should be no place where there's greater disapproval for that sin than in the church. It is morally repugnant and it should be felt in the church. The church must stand unyielding with the gospel. It can't give an inch. There will be no addition of any works to the gospel. It will be full and free grace only. We will not say with Rome, we will not come together with Rome and say, well, it's fine that you think that through sacramental grace you can achieve some position of justification through works plus Jesus. It is Jesus only. It's only Christ. And we cannot yield with regards to the gospel. We cannot give an inch. We must stand our ground. And the temptation, you think, Well, the temptation to yield isn't going to come here. I mean, we stand our ground with regards to the gospel. It takes one inch. It is just one inch at first. That's all it begins with. You compromise one inch. And the first inch you compromise on, it is much easier to compromise the next foot, the next yard, the next mile. You cannot compromise. We cannot compromise. Now, we have to do this in love. Paul said, speak the truth in love. And we have to understand that there are things that we can compromise on that are not essential to the Christian faith. Paul makes that very clear when he talks about Christian liberty. But there are certain things that you must say, I will not compromise ever on. If it takes my death it will be my body in a cold grave before I compromise on. I will not give in. We will feel more and more the pressure from our culture to give in with regards to the gospel. And we must say, we will not bow. We will not give in. We will stand on the word of God and we will stand unyielding on the gospel. Stand fast, church. You know, do you see the church? You see them yielding? You see them giving in? You can see it, can't you? I mean, there are whole denominations that are discussing whether same-sex um, marriage should be done by their preachers and whether people who call themselves homosexuals should be in the pulpit preaching, such as United Methodists and the PCUSA. Stand fast, church, the Apostle Paul says. Don't yield. Don't give in. Don't give an inch. Stand for the gospel. You have been committed the stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ, church. Don't give in. Hold to the gospel. Hold it with all your might. Hold it with all your might. Moise. Marvel. I always marvel in the book of Galatians just to note when the Apostle Paul told the Galatians not to give up the gospel. He says, I marvel that you are so soon departed from Him. From Him who hath called you. To depart from the gospel is to depart from Jesus. Do you know what has happened? In, in some liberal churches, they have not just departed from, well, I've departed from the Bible. You departed from Jesus. 
You've departed from God. That's who you've departed from. You've left your first love. You've departed from Him. And that is why Ichabod is written. That is why souls are not saved. That is why the Spirit of God does not work in power in those places. Now again, I'm not referring to people who aren't Presbyterian as being compromisers, who aren't just like us as being compromisers. Please, I'm not saying that. I'm saying those who are not evangelical Christians, who do not hold to the essentials of the Word of God and saving faith in Christ, they've departed from God. Be unyielding, church. And secondly, be unified for the gospel. Paul uses a number of phrases that speak of unity. He says, stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. That speaks of unity in the body. And there must be unity in the body of Christ. The, words, the word striving together is actually one word, and it's translated the only other time in Philippians 4 verse 3. And there it's translated labored with. It actually comes from the word athleo, which speaks of an athletic event. And so Paul now, turning from the picture of a warfare, now turns the picture of somebody in an athletic event. He's saying, church, it's like you're in an athletic event. He does this a number of times in his writings. In 2 Timothy 2.5, Paul wrote, And if a man also strive for the masteries, yet he's not crowned, except he strive lawfully. He's using the... Uh, image there of, of an athletic event. He does this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. Now the places he speaks of wrestling, or I, I beat my, my body. He uses athletic pictures to depict the Christian life and here the work of the church. And the idea of this word, striving together, is running a race or wrestling together as a unified body. It is a team sport. It's a team sport. The preacher is not the one who's to do this work of the gospel. Because striving together, it's for the gospel. It's for the advance of the gospel. Striving together for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel, faith there being the body of doctrine contained in the gospel, in the same way that Jude uses it, earnestly contained for the faith. You are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. You are to bring the gospel to every nation, to every creature. You are to seek to edify the body by meditating on the gospel, by applying the gospel to your brother and your sister in Christ. And it is a team sport. It can't be done by just one member of the body doing it or a little group doing it. It has to be a team sport. The whole body has to come together. I don't know if you've ever played football or basketball or some team sport like that. And all it takes is one player sometimes who drops the ball, who's not paying attention, who's thinking about something else, who doesn't want to hustle. And the game is lost. Now ultimately the game's never lost because Jesus, in the idea of a team sport, he is the unfailing coach. He never fails. He's never lost. But in the sense of what we do in this life, yes, within God's sovereignty, but still, still, we can fail. 
No, it's not an ultimate failure, but we can fail. Because members of a body are not engaged. Are not engaged. And not engaged in the work of God. It's a team sport. Every single person in the body is to be involved in the work of the gospel. Every single person has a vital and important part. A very vital, very important part. You are you're a part of the body. And the church needs you. The church needs you. I don't know what your gift, spiritual gift may be or where, where you may feel your place of service would be best. Whether it's prayer in a prayer closet at home. Or it's writing cards and notes of encouragement to people. Writing out verses, sending texts and seeking to encourage. Having the gift of, of, of giving. Being able to give graciously to people who are in need. I don't know what it might be. Teaching. Helping. Giving the gospel to people. You are a vital part. And we're to strive together. Now, it's very interesting that when Paul talks about striving together... And being in one mind and one spirit, he says, this is a result of living in the light of the gospel. Because the only way there will be unity is if the gospel, Christ clothed in the gospel, is preeminent. You see, because if the gospel's not center stage, a number of other things can become center stage. We all believe in the gospel. We all love Christ who are Christians in this body today. We all love Christ. We all believe the gospel. If the gospel's central, if the gospel is our great battle cry, if the gospel is what we're all about, getting the gospel to the lost, and us living in the light of that gospel, we will be able to rally together. But if something else becomes central, something else, some some pet doctrine some opinion becomes central in the church now you'll have your opinions and things like that we have distinctives as a free Presbyterian church but we're all at different levels of maturity and growth and the gospel in Christ must be central because if not, the church won't be able to come together and rally all together for that great work. Because somebody's opinion about something that is not essential will be exalted, placed in the limelight. And this church, been in places where a, a church is, is known, a church is known for a, a certain issue that they like to talk about. You go to some southern churches, the church is known for civil war history. No. Christ must be central. Christ must be. And so, brother and sister, I don't know where you may be, and we're, we're growing together, and you may disagree with, with me or with your brother or sister on some small issue. You may be growing in your understanding of it. But we can rally around this gospel. We can rally around Christ and doing all that we can in the short life that we have to live in the light of that gospel and to publish that gospel to souls that are in need. Be unified for the gospel. For the gospel. It's not enough to have a ministry that's against things. 
must be also for something. You must be against things, but you must be for things. Be for the gospel and be against everything that is not able to be in harmony with that gospel. The gospel must be central in the church if it's going to be unified. And then third, the third mark, unafraid with the gospel. Finally, Paul says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. In nothing terrified by your adversaries. This word terrified is speaking of something that is shocking or jolting. It is very frightful. It would have been used of a horse uh, as, he's, as he's startled. It's something that would take the, um, take the confidence right out of you. It would zap your courage. It would set you back and you'd be startled. You'd be shaking from intimidation, from, from fear. You'd be terrified. Paul's saying, church, you don't need to be terrified. You need to be unafraid. We need a fearless church. A fearless church. Yeah, we, don't, we need a church that's unyielding. We need a church that's unified, not fighting about everything under the sun. We need a church that is also fearless, unafraid, unafraid. If you rightly preach the gospel, you will have enemies. You can mark that down. You don't have any enemies is not a good sign. As Paul says, yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus said in John 16, that in me ye might have peace, in the world ye shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. If you preach the gospel in this world, you are going to be persecuted. You're going to have enemies. It's going to happen. You're going to have enemies. It might be your own family. It might be your neighbor. It could be churches that don't believe the gospel. You are going to have enemies. Mark it down. But we ought not to be afraid. We ought not to be terrified. Now, who are these enemies, these adversaries that Paul speaks about? What are the, who are the adversaries he's speaking about? Now, certainly it's possible that he's referring to the Romans here. That they were persecuting the church. But I think there's more than simply the Romans. That, they were an adversary, yes. But there's a specific group that he actually calls enemies of the cross in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, verse 18, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. These people were enemies of the cross and enemies of the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul also talks about another group. He warns them of a different group in the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. He says, beware of dogs. Now, dogs is the group that I have just spoken of. Those that are enemies of the cross, that their, their God was their belly, their glory was their shame. But then there's another group. Beware of evil workers, yes, beware of the concision. Now, the concision was a group of people who were professing Christians who were Jews, but they had a desire to add the law, ceremonial law, circumcision, you remember, to the church. 
They said you have to be circumcised in order to be fully accepted before God. So there are really two groups that are the adversaries Paul's referring to, as well as the Romans. These new Jewish professing believers who felt that they had to add the ceremonial law to the gospel. And then there's another group, and the other group, which he refers to as the enemies of the cross, they said, you can live however you want and keep the gospel. So the one is what you call legalists, and the other are what you call antinomians. The legalists. The legalists said, Jesus is not quite enough. You have to add circumcision to Christ. You have to add something to Jesus. He's not enough to justify. He's not enough to sanctify. You have to add something. A ceremonial external thing. We see some of that today in people who say, you must be baptized in order to be justified. They add some external thing to the gospel. Jesus plus nothing is the gospel. Yes, you receive Him by faith and repentance. It's Jesus only. And then legalism, as we talked about last week as well, and we'll look more deeply at it when we get to Philippians 3. But legalism has many different faces, as does antinomianism, and I'll explain that in a moment. Legalism has different faces. It's, the legalist is not only the person who says, you're justified by your works, or you have to add something to Christ. But legalism can, can come about even in Christians, and people who love Christ, and who really truly believe the gospel and would say you're not justified by anything but Christ and His work alone. But the legalism would come in where there's something in them where they feel that their performance, their, their performance in some way makes God love them more or less. Or they, they, they look at their performance as a Christian and, and they think that my performance is going to get me some better rewards, even in the Christian life. Instead of seeing the means of grace as being Christ's gift to us, we come to the Word, we come in prayer, we come to church, and we receive blessings because they're gifts. The more we're there, the more blessing we will, we will receive, but it's not a reward system. Legalism can also come about in people that will add things to the Word of God and say, this must be the way it is. Some churches that might say, you need to wear only, 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 only black. Um, I, I heard one church that only wear black ties and, and black suits. And everybody in the church, if someone walks in with a different color, they're going to think that person is in sin. That's legalism. That's adding to the Word. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. And there are many other things. Adding to the commands of Scripture. And thinking that they're sin when they're not. Now, we can add things insofar as our own lives are concerned. There are things that you don't do and I don't do that are not directly commanded. But we know that we want to be close to Christ. And so we might say, you know what, I'm not going to... maybe." Somebody says, I'm just deciding not to have a TV in my home because I just know me. And for me, it's better I don't. But another brother has a TV in his house 
He's not in sin, right? There's nowhere in the scripture it says that that's wrong. But this legal spirit makes all these little opinions and little things huge. Huge. And really what it is, is at the root and foundation, it is not a misunderstanding of the law, it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Misunderstanding of the gospel. It goes back to seeing the law and the light of the gospel, understanding that we are fully in God's favor and justified in Christ alone. The law is given us so that we can be full of joy in, in following a Christ-like life and pleasing our Heavenly Father. It is not the basis of our justification. It's not the basis of, of God's favor towards us. And we can't keep the law except by looking by faith to Christ and getting strength from Him. There's a lot more to that, but understand at least those basic things these people were coming against the Philippian church and they were saying things like, you're too loose. You're saying that salvation is, is free and you're justified by just faith? You're too loose. That's what the Roman Catholic Church said during the Reformation. If you say you're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, you're going to have people running around doing whatever they want to do, saying, I'm saved. You're too loose, church at Philippi. You need, you need to put circumcision and add it to the gospel. Paul says, don't be afraid. The other group, antinomians. Anti, against, nomian, comes from namas, law, against the law. They're in the total opposite. And these guys are saying, hey, you can come to Jesus, and because of grace, you can live a worldly lifestyle, and it's okay. Don't worry about it. You're loved by God. You're accepted. You can live however you want to. The Bible says their God is their belly, meaning their God is their flesh, their pleasure, whatever pleases them, whatever gives them fleshly pleasure. So they'd say, you can become a Christian and you can live any way you like to. And we're not going to judge you. We're not going to condemn you. Against the law. So they're on the other side. Now, it's not like this. They say no law, and the other people, the legalists, say too much law, so we need to strike a balance in the middle. Just a little bit of law and a little bit of grace makes the perfect uh, gospel recipe. And it's not the case. The gospel is not somewhere in between legalism and anomia. The gospel is up here. It's not... Um, it's not in the same world. In the same world. The gospel is not a balanced, like a little bit of law and a little bit of grace. No, no, no. The gospel is the law in the context of the work of Jesus Christ. Being understood in the light of His work. That's the gospel. It's not either of those. Now these people were threatening the church. I don't know if they were perhaps threatening them physically. They were harassing them. So though from the one side, you are so loose. Look at you, you're unholy. You're ungodly. Because you don't follow our opinions. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt that from people. That have, maybe, maybe you've left a church, you've left background where people said you have to wear this or you have to act like this and, and they would look at it as sin. Not just as a good thing or helpful, but as sin if you don't. 
and you've been looked at by them as being worldly now. Maybe that's been the case. Paul says, don't be afraid. Don't give an inch in the gospel. Maybe you've talked to people and they've said, you are concerned about holiness? You're you're telling me that your preacher is actually going to stand up there and say that a Christian cannot watch ungodly things that are full of sexual immorality? Or you're saying that somebody isn't a true Christian if they haven't repented of sin? What are you talking about? We're all just miserable sinners. And Jesus loves us, and and it's grace, and we can be saved, and don't judge people. Perhaps you feel the pressure from that. And Paul says, don't you be afraid of anyone. Don't be afraid if, if the ungodly Romans threaten to physically persecute you. Don't be intimidated by the legalists who are trying to pressure you to change. Don't be threatened by the antinomians who are saying you need, you know, you are, you are narrow and bigoted. Don't be afraid. Do not give an inch of the gospel. And how do you cultivate that boldness? You know how you cultivate that boldness? You cultivate that boldness by keeping Christ central. Because when you understand more fully the glorious gospel of free grace, the more your heart is gripped with the gospel and you see your Christian life in the light of the gospel and the light of Christ, and all of a sudden, your Christian life is all shining with the light of the gospel. You don't just see any action in your life divorced from your relationship with Christ. And when your heart is gripped with the gospel of Jesus Christ and you feel in the depths of your soul that you are justified and you have this burning passion to live holy lives for Jesus Christ, not in bondage, but in glorious freedom, standing fast in the liberty where Christ has made us free. We can live for Christ and we love to live for Christ now because we're saved and we're justified. When that grips your soul, you will not be terrified. You will not be terrified. You'll be terrified by the legalists. You won't be terrified by the antinomians. And even if somebody threatens to take your life, you won't be terrified because you will say, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. John Wesley, one time, was writing, and he said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw, whether they be clergy or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. We need a fearless church. A fearless church. And I believe with all my heart, based on this text and many others in Scripture, the way the church will become fearless for the, uh, for the gospel fearless with their proclamation of the gospel, not fearing death, nor hell, nor any man, and preaching the gospel to a godless culture, preaching the gospel to every nation, not worrying what happens, fearless with the gospel, is when their hearts become gripped with the glories of that gospel. It is not by the church hanging their head and saying, I need to be less fearful. I need to be less fearful. You do need to be less fearful. But that will be the fruit of a heart that is gripped with the gospel. A heart that understands Jesus Christ, the captain of the Lord's hosts, is my king. Because the gospel tells me I am in his kingdom. 
understanding nothing can rob me of my reward because Jesus has purchased my salvation. Jesus is my redemption. Jesus is my righteousness. And when your heart is gripped with that, that will make all the difference. Oh, we need, we need more missionaries. Just thinking about missions. Oh, we need more missionaries. You go, you go and you talk to people in, in houses around here and you think, my goodness, there needs to be more people talking to people about Christ. And then you think of missions. You think of all the nations that need Christ. All the nations that need to hear of Jesus. Paul makes very clear in Romans 10. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord be saved, but how can they call if they don't believe? How can they believe if they've not heard? How can they hear if there's no preacher? How can they believe and call and hear if the preacher has not been sent? And there are millions that are lost and they need a preacher to take them the gospel. And the number one qualification for a missionary, number one qualification, is that their hearts are inflamed with Jesus Christ and His gospel. That is it. Yes, I understand, focus on the need. And, and look at the need. And let the need grip your heart. That's important. Even you know, the Lord Jesus was gripped with, moved with compassion. But when the gospel and Christ grips your soul... He will say, I mean, I have. I have a gospel that can save. I have a gospel that can save. And all these people, they can be saved. I'm not afraid. Nothing can rob me of the riches of Jesus. I will take the gospel. I will be unafraid. So, we have been called by the Apostle Paul to have... A church that is unyielding in the gospel and is unified for the gospel and that is unafraid with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are these marks found in us? In what degree are they found? Let's go more often to the Lord Jesus. Seek His face. Ask Him to bear these marks, these fruits in our hearts. Now let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, there has never been or not many times when there is a greater need for your people to be unyielding, unified, and unafraid. Lord Jesus, make us Make us a force to be reckoned with with the gospel. Help us to triumph over the powers of darkness. May we see Christ and his gospel uplifted and exalted in our day. Give us grace. Bless thy people. Bless thine inheritance. Feed them. Be their portion for Jesus' sake. Amen.